Good morning. It's on. Yeah, great to be back here. And uh, what a joy it is to be back here and preach to you from God's Word again. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nissen Matthew, and uh, I have the privilege of leading the university student ministry here in the UAE called Focus. And uh, one thing I would love for you to pray for is uh, we are about to kickstart our academic year with a long retreat for our student leaders. So we're going to spend a whole week with our students in God's Word. They're going to spend over 30 hours studying either the Gospel of Mark or 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's what they're going to be doing all week. And uh, there are several non-Christians there. We would love for you to pray that God would open the eyes of these students so that they would see Christ and they would give their lives to Jesus. And we would also love for you to pray that our Christian students, as a result of their time in God's Word, would be bold and motivated to go back on their campuses to share the good news of Jesus with their friends. Uh, Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for partnering with us in our ministry. Love sharing with you what God is doing with students here. Well, this morning, I have the privilege of preaching to you from an amazing part of the Bible, Psalm 119. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to preach the whole thing. We are going to look at verses 1 to 24, particularly. But I want to say, right as we are beginning, that, uh, you know, many people approach this psalm with a lot of fear. And uh, the fear is that it's a long psalm, and just to be able to get through it will take a long time. You know, in this day and age when uh, anything more than 140 characters can seem long for us, or uh, like me, anything longer than a blog post can make me feel antsy. Um, You know, it's hard to set aside time to read such a lengthy part of God's Word. But there was a time when people would read it and read this portion of Scripture regularly and meditatively. I must also say that one of the other challenges that people face and uh, they get put off when they come to Psalm 119 is that When you start reading Psalm 119, it can sound a little repetitive. It can seem like the psalmist is saying the same thing over and over and over again. But if you look closely, you will see that he's not just saying the same things over and over again, that there are variations in what he's trying to present, subtle variations. But you need to be able to spend time studying this psalm in order to really appreciate that. But also, I must say that we all need repetition. We all need to be reminded of the truths about God's Word and who God is so that it can take root in our hearts. So let me recommend this to you. I would love for you to figure out some time when you can, either this weekend or sometime in the next couple of weeks, set aside an hour just to read Psalm 119. And the way you should read it is, Read it slowly, read it meditatively, and read it loudly in order for you to feel the full effect of the psalm. And I assure you, you will come out of that time feeling that you're rejoicing in God's Word as you've meditated on this amazing part of God's Word. Well, this morning, like I mentioned, 
I want to turn our attention to the first 24 verses of Psalm 119. And there are three things that I'd like for us to see. <clears throat> In the first section that we are going to look at, which is from verses 1 to 8, uh, well, what I would like for us to see is God's word is a path for us to receive blessings from God. God's word is a path for us to receive blessings from God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119, and let's read verses 1 to 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Well, you know, it's um, hard to nail down the structure of the psalm. I'm sure that some people have done it. But uh, very simply put, this is one way to divide the psalm, all of Psalm 119. And uh, that is, the first three verses of the psalm are, is one section. And basically, they are truths that psalmist states about the kind of person that is blessed by God. The kind of person that is blessed by God. That's, the, that's what he says there in the first three verses. And really, the rest of the psalm is, is really a prayer. The psalm, psalmist prays to God in response to the first three verses. So, really, the rest of the psalm is a response to the psalmist's understanding or meditation of the truth about the kind of person that is blessed by God. Well, let's take a closer look at the first three verses of this psalm. Well, right off the bat, we see what this psalm is about. We see that this psalm is talking about how God's people can experience his blessings. You know, we are reminded as we read the psalm of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, where he starts a sermon similarly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, so on and so forth. Matthew chapter 5. And there are amazing promises that are secured for God's people by Christ. And so also, when we come to the psalm, we come to hear of God's blessing that is in store for God's people. Now, these are not blessings in the sense that they are material blessings. But as you see in the psalm, these are blessings that flow out of our relationship with God. It's in the context of relationship with God. These blessings are spiritual in nature, but they are all things that we can experience in our lives right now. Now, the question is, how do you come to experience these blessings from God? Well, you know, almost every verse in Psalm 119, I say almost because there are four verses that does not say this, but Every other verse in Psalm 119 has a reference to God's Word. 
And he uses different phrases and different words to describe God's word. So he uses words like, we see even in the first section, the law of the Lord, or testimonies, or precepts, statutes, commandments, righteous rules, word. They all have slight differences, but they mean pretty much the same thing. The psalmist uses them interchangeably to describe the same thing, namely God's word. So this psalm is really an amazing meditation on God's word. It's an amazing meditation on the Bible. And as we read the psalm, we come to realize how rich God's word is. It's really a treasure trove for those who want to experience God's word. You know, we are reminded even as we meet this morning and uh, read God's word together that uh, there are many people around the world that do not have access to God's word. And what we are experiencing this morning is a privilege that not everybody in the world has. And so many people are in darkness. They cannot know unless God uses Christians to take God's word to them how they can be blessed by God. If only we knew what we have access to so easily, only we appreciated what God's word truly is, I think we would spend more time reading God's word and trying to understand God's word. Now notice, interestingly, who these blessings are for. Verse 1, he says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Now, this is the point that, you know, many of us, as we read Psalm 119, we are tempted to check out. Because when we hear the word blamelessness and blessing for blamelessness, what do we think of? We think it means sinlessness. We're thinking about someone who, who is in a state of sinless perfection, as someone who receives these blessings from God. And so we are tempted to think that this psalm does not really apply to us. Because who is sinless in this world? There is only one, and that is Jesus. But that's not the way the word blamelessness is used in the Bible. Blamelessness does not always mean sinlessness. It refers to a direction that you set in your life. It describes a way of life. So, when we come to Job, for instance, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, Job is described as blameless and upright. Of course, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. It just means that he was resolved to live a blameless life, a life that followed God. We also know, just to give you another example, about John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. We are told that they were righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Of course, they were sinful, but yet they were blameless. It refers to their way of life, direction of life. It's their resolve in how they live before God. Now, on one level, on one level, everybody that has repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus is blameless. 
You know, an amazing thing happens when a person comes to Christ. And the amazing thing is that God declares them just. God declares them righteous. In his books, they are as righteous as Jesus. Not because they have earned it, not because they have lived a blameless life, but because God has given to them the righteousness of Christ by grace as a free gift. It's amazing to think of what Christ achieved in this world, isn't it? Christ lived a perfect life, perfect in every sense. He obeyed all of God's laws, obeyed God even to the point of dying, dying on the cross for us. The most amazing exchange happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus. All of Christ's righteousness that he achieved through his obedience in this world is credited to that person. And all of their sin is transferred to Christ, for which he died on the cross when he paid for their sins. This is an amazing exchange that happens to anybody that comes to Christ in faith. But Christ did not remain dead. He rose from the dead, proving that he has paid for all of our sin. All of our debt has been paid for because he died on the cross. The technical term for this is justification. We are justified. Anyone that has put their faith in Christ, repented of their sin, they are declared just. But you see, that's not the end of the story. Everyone who is saved by Christ also starts a journey. It's the beginning of a walk, and it's a walk with Jesus. It's a lifelong walk where they seek to walk closely with Jesus, and the more closely they walk with Jesus, the more they begin to look like him. As some of you know, um, you know our baby, uh, Amelia, who is a great delight to us, is about to turn one year old in a few days. And uh, it has been fascinating, absolutely fascinating, to see the things that she is learning to do. But what we have begun to see is that depending on who she spends more time with, she begins to look like them. So one of the things my family loves to ask uh, Amelia to do when she's with other people is, Amelia, show how Dada eats. And then she does this dramatic way of moving her mouth up and down and smacking her lips. It's embarrassing, but I like to think that she is beginning to look like me. You see, we are all by nature uh, imitators. That's how God created us. We are created to, in the image of God to represent God in this world. But when sin entered our lives and when sin entered our world, we stopped doing that work. But when Christ saves us, we begin to reflect more and more of God, more and more of Christ in our lives. And the way we do that is by walking closely with Jesus. That's what the Christian walk is all about. But how do we walk closely with Jesus? Well, we do it by spending time in God's Word. Because it is in the pages of Scripture, it is in the pages of the infallible, inspired Word of God that we meet and see Jesus clearly. It's there 
that Jesus is presented to us in a way that we will not be able to see him any other way. And the more we spend time in God's word, the more we begin to look like him. It's important for us to consider how we walk as Christians because there is great reward. That's the blessing that the psalmist talks about in this psalm. The blessing that comes to those who walk blamelessly, who seek to have their whole lives conformed to the Bible. There's great motivation to want to live this way. But even though there is great blessing, an important question that we need to be asking ourselves is, why is it so hard for us to live this way? Why is it so hard then for many to seek to conform their lives according to Scripture? Well, I think one reason why we find it hard is because oftentimes we think we are not doing that bad. We're fine. So when we read God's Word either one-to-one or in our small group Bible studies or even when we hear God's Word being preached to us like this morning, you know, to be honest, we don't sense any urgency in wanting to apply God's word in our lives. You know, oftentimes we don't, uh, we don't feel the sense that we need to apply it immediately in our lives. And that is because we are too easily satisfied with how we are doing, I think. You know, one of the questions we ask our students every time we get together with them in focus is a great question, which is, how are you doing spiritually? Um, and often the answer I get is, I'm doing great. In fact, many times when someone asks me that question, that's what I say, I'm doing great. But what does that mean? It could mean that we are doing better than we were doing last week. It could mean that we are doing better than, we, than others. It could mean a number of things. But it all depends on what we are comparing ourselves to. How do we evaluate ourselves? Now, I want to say it is important for us to be encouraged by the things that God is doing in our lives. So every time we see an evidence of grace in our lives, we should rejoice and we should recount because it is important for us to know that God is working in our lives. It motivates us to strive further in our Christian walk. But let me ask you this. If you could sit down with the psalmist and ask him that question, Billy, or whatever his name is, we don't really know who wrote the psalm. How are you doing spiritually? I wonder how he would answer that question. I think he would say, great. After all, he has written this amazing meditation on God's word. He is clearly in love with God's word. But then he would go on to say, I think, what he says in verses 4 to 6. You have, this is a prayer to God, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And verse 5 he says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Do you see the psalmist longing? You can hear his sigh as he says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast. See, the psalmist is looking at God's word. He's keeping his eyes fixed on God's commandments. He's looking at how he's doing. He's not discouraged, but he longs for even more. This is not perfectionism that causes anxiety or depression. But this is, I think as John Piper says, holy 
ambition to want to see all of his life conformed to scripture. I think the only way we can long for the same in our lives is if we keep our eyes fixed on the commandments of God. Too easily we evaluate how we are doing spiritually based on, I think, how we were doing before or how we are feeling or how others are doing. But I think in order for us to rightly evaluate ourselves, we need to look at God's word, look at God's standard, and then we will be able to see the goal that we are trying to strive towards. And we should never stop striving till we reach that goal, till we become like Christ in every way. You know, there is no such thing, there's no such category in the Bible as a Christian that is coasting in his Christian life. So there is no such person in the Bible that says, I'm saved, I know I'm going to heaven, now I'm just going to sit back, take it easy in my Christian life. There's no such person. And the Christian life matters. Obedience matters. Striving to become more like Jesus every day matters to someone who is a believer. And we never stop working at that till either we die or till Christ comes back. Now, just to be clear, in all of our striving, it is the Holy Spirit working in us. God has given us a spirit, which is an amazing gift for us to experience. The Holy Spirit now indwells in believers, transforming them to be more like Jesus. And we read in Philippians chapter 12 that it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, it is God who is working. And that's an amazing motivation. But God does not work in our lives apart from us working to apply God's word in our lives. You see, the way we make progress in our sanctification, the way we become more like Jesus is we work hard at obeying God's word. And the more we do that, the more God, we feel like God equips us with strength and power and renewed energy to do that. See, we are not doing this to be saved. We are not working hard so that we can achieve salvation. No, we're doing this because we are saved. We're given a new heart. We are a new creation. Christ has set us free from the dominion of sin and set us free to now live a life that pleases God. And so we come to God's word not feeling burdened as we think about obedience. We don't walk away from God's word feeling like, how could I ever possibly do that? We walk away from God's word feeling motivated as we think about the grace that God has shown us through Christ, as we think about the spirit that is now dwelling within us, we walk away from God's word, being motivated with resolve to live as God's word commands us to. Look at how the psalmist comes out of his time of reflection. So he says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast. That's his evaluation of how he's doing. And look at his resolve in verses 6, 7, and 8. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. See, it's not just external obedience the psalmist is looking for. It's all of life. It's head, heart, and hands. That's a great way to think about how to apply scripture in our lives. Head, heart, 
and hands. How should God's word affect my head? How should I think about truth? How should it affect my heart? How should I feel about God's word? And how should it affect my life? Hands. Every time we come to God's word, it's a great way to think about how to apply God's word in our lives. Head, heart, hands. Now the psalmist turns his thoughts to how God's word can help us in a particular way, and that is in our fight against sin. So let's consider, secondly, God's word keeping us pure. Let's read verses 9 to 16. The psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. See, the section starts with that question that the psalmist is posing really to himself, which is, how can a young man keep his ways pure? When we think about the way, word pure, you know, we all on, often only think about, you know, lust. But purity is much more broad. Basically, this is a question of how he's, he's asking, how can a young man keep from sinning? Now, it's also interesting that he says, how can a young man? Now, obviously, this section doesn't just offer solution, a solution to young men. You know, it is for everybody, whether we are your old man or old woman or young woman, for everybody. I think what is going on is the psalmist is a young man. And it's his way of asking, how can I keep myself pure? But really, the answer to his question is simple. It is by delighting in God's word. You know what a strange thing that is to those who are not believers? To delight in God's word. It's a common experience for Christians to delight in God's word. But you know what it sounds like? It sounds like that kid we all know in all of our classes who goes to the teacher and says, Teacher, I love your rules. Teacher, I love you so much because you give the most rules. You win the prize for being the best teacher in the class. We all know what we think of that person. But the, when Christians talk about their experience, when they come to God's word, that's, it's not same. It's not self-righteousness. That's because God's word is not just external to believers. It is something that has taken root in their heart. That is, their relationship with God's word has changed with their relationship with God. So in Jeremiah 31, we read this amazing prophecy that uh, the prophet speaks about. In Jeremiah 31, 33, God talks about what is going to happen in the new covenant for his people. He says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see the change that has happened in our relationship with God's law? God has written it on our hearts. And this is an amazing prophecy that is already fulfilled, fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus for all who trust in him. They're forgiven by him. And now anyone who is in Christ, God's law is written on their hearts. That's why they can delight in God's word. It's not something external to them anymore. It is something that is part of their hearts. You know, I love being with new Christians. One of the greatest privileges of my job is to watch new believers read God's word. It's, it's a great joy. It's so great to see people going from being bored with reading God's word or completely checked out in Bible studies to suddenly delighting in God's word to wanting to spend their time reading, understanding, digging deep into God's word where they just cannot get enough of reading God's word. It's like watching people go from death to life because that's what has happened. Their relationship with God's word changes as they are converted to Christ. Now, this is an experience that everybody who is in Christ can have. We can delight in God's word. Even though that is the case, we must confess that there are times when we don't feel that when we come to scriptures. And uh, if we are honest with ourselves, I think maybe there are some of us here this morning who feel that way when we come to, when you come to God's word, you know, cold, distant from God's word. And there are times when it takes great effort just to read God's word. And I must say, the reason why it is hard, even for Christians, to come to God's word, to find joy in reading God's word, is because of the sin that indwells within us. See, sin keeps us from enjoying God's word. Because that's what sin does so well. Sin has a blinding effect. It blinds our vision of God and his word. Sin lies to us. It's so good at telling us these lies that there is better pleasure we get in indulging in sin than anything that God offers to us in his word. It lies to us by telling us that God in the gospel is not satisfying for us, that sin is better. And we all know how easy sin comes to us. You don't have to work hard at it. But even from our experience, we know that Even though there may be temporary pleasure that we get when we indulge in sin, we're left feeling only guilty, ashamed, distant from God. We want to run away from God, not run to God. And as we give into sin more and more, our hearts become numb, so much so that we don't even take it seriously anymore. Friends, if only we knew what sin could do to us what it is doing to us, we would run away from it. Sin will kill us if we let it. But unless we let God's word speak to us, we cannot know the truth about sin. We certainly can't find it in this world. Let's learn from the psalmist. You see how desperate he is about fighting sin in his life? 
He's vigilant about guarding his way according to the Bible. He's desperate to not wander from God's commands because he knows what can happen to him. He is storing up God's word in his heart. He's memorizing scripture. The psalmist is working hard, really hard, at getting God's word into his heart. We want to work hard at letting God's word affect our hearts, not only because we are afraid of what sin can do, but because we know what God's word can do. See, God's word offers to us far greater delight than any sin can ever offer us because what we receive in God's word is God himself. He is the object of our greatest delight. We were created to enjoy him forever, to have fellowship with him, to delight in him. God is the greatest treasure of our souls. Look at how the psalmist feels about God's word in verse 14. He says that he delights in God's word as much as in all riches. Think of that. All riches. The most expensive homes, most expensive cars, unlimited money. Think if you can have it. It's not hard to imagine living in a place like this. But imagine more, even more, all the wealth in this world. The psalmist says he would trade it all for God's word because of the delight that God's word can bring him. Friends, you know, we will be in heaven delighting in God forever, never getting bored, never feeling like we are done. We long for that, don't we? The amazing thing is we can experience some of that even now. And our experience now is nothing compared to what it will be like when Jesus comes back. But even the taste a taste of delighting in God as we come to his word is enough to cause us to run from sin. But delighting takes work. It takes serious study for us to get to a place where we love God's word. Friends, we got to be applying God's word in our lives, applying it so that we are delighting in it. And when God's word shows us sin in our lives, we should be quick to repent. When we see sin, we should run to the cross, think about what Jesus has done for us, that he's died for all of our sin, and we should be quick to repent. For repentance always leads to joy, joy in God and joy in God's word. It's really a cycle, isn't it? Repentance of sin leads to delighting in God's word. Delighting in God's word helps us repent of our sin. So, friends, when you read the Bible and you, you're convicted of your sin, don't wait. Be quick to repent, and you will find that your joy in God's Word increases. I remember when I was a young Christian, there was a season when I just had no motivation to speak the gospel to anyone. I had no motivation to obey. I felt like I was lacking passion for God. I remember a friend asking me a question. Listen, are you struggling with a sin that you are not repenting of? That was really helpful for me. And by God's grace, I saw that sin. I repented of my sin, a particular sin in my life. And I can't tell you the effect that it had on my Bible reading. God's word became sweet to me. It was a taste I had not known for a while. My taste for God's word was renewed. David in Psalm 51, verse 12 
you know, a psalm where he is repenting of his sin, of adultery, he, he prays to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, that's what happens. Every time we turn from sin and turn to God, we experience delight in our relationship with God and in God's work. Friends, you cannot do this alone. We need others to speak truth into our lives. Because when we are blinded by sin, we need someone to hold our hands and lead us to Christ and read God's word with us. So let me encourage you, make use of relationships you have in your church to study God's word together. You not only have God's word that you can delight in, but you also have others around you that feel the same way about God's word. They can speak truth into your life. Well, the psalmist talks about God's word and how it helps him keep pure. Finally, we'll consider the third thing that the psalmist wants to tell us, and that is how God's word gives us comfort in our affliction. Let's read Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. He says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones, who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. No suffering, affliction, trials, they're part and parcel of living in this broken world. But there is a special type of suffering that comes to those who follow Jesus. It's promised to them. Persecution that comes on account of the gospel. But no matter the kind of suffering that a person goes through, it's not always easy, It is, is it, to know what to say to those who are suffering to comfort them. It's not easy. But it's great that we have God's word. And God's word provides relief for those who are suffering. But what kind of relief does God's word give to a Christian who is suffering? That's what we see in this section. The psalmist is telling us about his suffering. And certainly this is the special kind of suffering that is for Christians that comes to him on account of following God. So leaders are plotting against him. He is experiencing insult and scorn. And we know that he is clinging to his life. He is having a near-death experience. And he is praying this prayer as he is face-to-face with death. But what is he praying for? You will see that most of his prayers have to do with keeping God's word, delighting in God's word. You know, so in verse 17, we see this most astounding thing he says. He's, he prays that God will deal with him bountifully, that he will live. He's praying that God will cause him to continue to live. But why? Ultimately, because he wants to keep God's word, he says. He finds his reason to live is so that he can follow and keep God's word. You know, trials and affliction, there's nothing like it for a Christian that forces them to run to God's word in their time of desperation. Why is it that Christians, when they suffer, run to God's word? 
I think it is because what we want in our life are quick fixes, small mercies. We want our problems right now to go away. We want God to solve all our earthly problems. We want him to remove the suffering. And we should pray for those things. In fact, the psalmist here prays for those things. But God's word promises things that are far greater for those who follow Jesus. It doesn't promise that our suffering will end. It doesn't promise that all our earthly problems will end. But it does promise us, those who are in Christ, an eternity of endless joy of communion with God, for instance. God's word promises that in the resurrection, there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin. But we can lose sight of these things as we suffer, as Christians suffer. And God's word pulls those things closer to us so that we are able to see things in our lives with the right perspective. This is what we need to hear. We need to hear God's word when we suffer. And when we do that, we will find that we rejoice even in the midst of suffering. There are lots of examples of Christians who suffer and have found great comfort in reading God's word. Something that is just unbelievable and does not make sense to those who are not in Christ. But in closing, I just want to share with you this story. Many of you might have read this book, The Hiding Place. Corrie ten Boom, who is a Dutch Christian, she was helping and protecting Jews from the Nazis when eventually she and her sister Betsy was taken to a concentration camp. And throughout their time there, the thing they longed for most and they protected most with their lives was their secret copies of the Bible. In fact, while they were at Ravensbrück, it was the most notorious women's concentration camp, they conducted a Bible study in the concentration camp. Now listen to how she describes their time in God's Word in this camp. She says, it grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear. And that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. As for us, from morning to lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of, our, of an ever-widening circle of health and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, which basically means like homeless people gathered around a fire, we gathered about it, about the Bible, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night grew around us, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about us as Betsy read God's word, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It 
was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, she says. Mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. It's really powerful, isn't it? You know, in times of suffering, God's word is the only thing that can provide us lasting peace and comfort. Nothing in this world can soothe our souls like God's word can. If we are in Christ, no matter the circumstances, we can all experience the same joy and delight that can help us flee from sin. We can experience the same motivation and resolve to live our lives according to God's word, and we can all experience the same comfort from God's word as the psalmist in the psalm. New Life Church, in this day and age where there are so many distractions, I pray that we all would recognize the precious gift we have in God's word and hold fast to it. Study it. Memorize it. Speak it to one another. Sing it to one another. And bury it deep in your hearts. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. How amazing it is. How rich it is. God, we pray that you would cause our hearts to fall more in love with your word to be able to delight in your word like the psalmist does. Father, we thank you for changing our hearts so that we can delight in your God's word. Father, we pray that as we spend time in your word, that we would be ever more resolved and motivated to live for Christ in this world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.